Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. May be seated. I'm so nervous I forgot to mention that the words were on the back of your bulletin. <laughs> That's okay, we can have another shot at it after the sermon. Those are some of the most profound words, some of those most beloved words in our Bible. So as the kids go, let me just tell you a story. Let me just waste a few seconds as they're going. The most the beloved words in our Bibles, so much so that they're often words that are memorized. You might have even committed them to memory yourself. Well, there's a pastor one, uh, one day, one year in his, in his congregation that thought that would be a good idea, actually asked the kids to memorize Psalm 23 for their Easter celebration. They were going to recite this on Easter morning. And there was one kid that was having a particularly hard time committing this psalm to memory. In fact, he could not make it beyond the first line. So when it was his turn to get up, probably as nervous as I am right now, just trying to get over that experience. When he was about to get up, it was his turn, he was approaching, he, he, he came up front to where the mic was and he, 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 he recited what he knew. But instead of the first line, the Lord is my shepherd, no want shall I know, the words that came out of his mouth was, the Lord is my shepherd and that's all that I know. But it's not a bad thing, right? If you're going to know one thing, it's not a bad thing to know. The Lord is your shepherd. It's not a bad place to start, not a bad place to end. Well, again, we're continuing in our series on the Gospel of John entitled, Jesus Changes Everything. Looking today at how Jesus changes Palm Sunday. But even though the events of Palm Sunday, if you're up to speed on this, that those events aren't recorded in the Gospel of John until chapter 12, we're still going to focus our attention today on where we left off last week in John chapter 10. And by the end of our time here today, I think you'll see why. Now, to understand the, the, the significance of that last time that, that Jesus showed up in Jerusalem, people waving palm branches the week that he was nailed to the cross, that I want to suggest to you today, you have to first hear what he says in Jerusalem when he was there in that city the time before, which is in John 10, recorded for us in John 10, that to understand the events of John 12 and actually everything that unfolds after that, what we call Palm Sunday through Friday, leading up to Easter Sunday, you have to hear first what Jesus says in John chapter 10. And you'll see why. Well, I want to begin by reading a portion of this chapter, beginning, in fact, in John chapter 9, verse 39. That's where we actually left off last week. And, and while you're turning there, let me just remind you that Jesus has just declared himself to be the light of the world. But, but a lot of people don't like this, not only because of what it says about Jesus, but, but, but because of what it says about them. If he's the light, that means we're the ones that start off in darkness, we're like the blind man that, that we looked at last week, 
who Jesus heals to illustrate his point that, that we can't see God or, or ourselves or our place in this world that we can't see apart from him. Because we need him. And unless we acknowledge our need for him, that we are indeed one of his sheep, we're then condemned to the darkness we started off in without him. Which is what we read beginning in John chapter 9, verse 39. I'm going to read just the beginning portion of this to John chapter 10, verse 6. Follow along though as I read. This is God's word. It says, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, We see. And your guilt remains. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Before we consider how this scene develops as the chapter goes on, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we celebrate today, that day, nearly 2,000 years ago, when Jesus entered Jerusalem for that last time that would lead ultimately to the cross and finally to an empty tomb, I pray that we would see him through the words he spoke in that city the time before. I pray that we would know what kind of king he came to be. And what he intended to conquer on our behalf. How he intended to conquer it and what that means for us today. That he did it for his glory. But as much from this passage, that he did it for our good. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, most of you know and just found out that Catherine and the kids and I lived in Scotland for a bit, for a few years. And from our time there, one of the most vivid memories that I have were the long drives that we used to take into the Cairngorm mountain range over what the locals called the Lecht. It was a, it was a one and a half lane bypass, not on either side of the dividing line. It was just one and a half lanes bus coming one direction, you jump off the road to save your soul. It's a one and a half lane bypass 
through some of the roughest terrain um, in the British Isles. And looking at it, you would almost think it was uninhabited. A a wasteland in the midst of the Scottish Highlands. The moors that were stretching out as far as the eyes could see without a living creature in sight. Just miles and miles and miles. But on these long drives over the lact, seeing no sign of life, for what seemed like hours on end, you would inevitably come around a corner and have to come to a screeching halt because blocking the road would be a flock of sheep. Now, you've seen this in movies, right? We lived that. It is terrifying. Not as terrifying as singing, I admit. Now I know. It's terrifying, though. And it confirmed all of our deepest prejudices that sheep are some of the stupidest, stubbornness, most vulnerable animals on the planet. And that's despite whatever scientific study wants to suggest otherwise. And and that sheep not only are the stupidest and stubbornest and most vulnerable animals on the planet, but they are indisputably in need, dependent upon a shepherd. They're what one author calls dumb, directionless, and defenseless. They don't know where they are, or where they're going, and even if they did, they wouldn't know how to get there. There's a a, a recent article about a Scottish sheepdog that made a a 240-mile trek back to its owner, found its way home. You never, though, hear of Dolly the sheep doing the same. You never hear it, right? There is no article out there. I looked. Google doesn't have it. Because again, these are what? Some of the stupidest, most stubborn, most vulnerable animals on the planet. And yet, more than an indictment against the sheep, which is one of the Bible's favorite images of what it means to be human, more than an indictment against the sheep, the picture serves much more to highlight the importance of the shepherd. Because it's not the job of the sheep to guide themselves, to provide for themselves. It's not the job of the sheep to defend themselves or contend for themselves. The weaknesses of the sheep merely highlight the strengths of the shepherd. And the kind of shepherd we need. And at least in this passage in John chapter 10, the kind of shepherd that Jesus came to be. A shepherd who first cares for his sheep. A shepherd who who second sacrifices for his sheep. And a shepherd who third carries his sheep. So first, that Jesus is a a shepherd who cares for his sheep. When the Pharisees are unable to pick up what Jesus is throwing down, Jesus uh, takes this image of a shepherd and his sheep laid out in verses 1 to 5, and he begins to expand on it in different ways, beginning in verse 7. 
And he does so at first by, by picking up this picture of a door or a gate that, that distinguishes between the thieves and robbers that climb into the sheepfold by another way and the shepherd who enters as he ought. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And it's worth noticing even now, worth knowing even now, that in declaring himself the door of the sheepfold, seems like somewhat a strange image, right? It's somewhat strange. You're not expecting that one, right? I am the door. You know, you could be a lot of things. There's a great noble thing. I am the door doesn't seem like one of them. But it's important to see that even declaring himself to be the door of the sheepfold, Jesus may really at this point just be highlighting another aspect of what it means for him to be the shepherd. And here's why. It was common enough in ancient times when you were out with your flock to construct at night a makeshift pen, right? You're wandering the wilderness. You're looking for pasture for your sheep. You're not going back home, right? You're out in the wilderness. You don't have a home, right? You're a shepherd. And so you would construct a makeshift pen from whatever's lying around on the ground, right? But with that, you didn't really carry a gate in your back pocket. It's not like you fixed this thing out of rocks or sticks or whatever you could find and then pull the gate out that you've been like pulling around the wilderness, right? So as the shepherd, this was part of your resume, right? You were the gate. You'd sleep in front of the opening because you didn't want to make an opening in the morning. You would just leave one and then you sleep there. So your resume basically was shepherd, nine to five, gate, five to nine right? So this is just another aspect. It's also one of these things in John that he brings into the picture, not to develop at this point, but to develop later on. So when we get to John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he's picking up on this idea that he's the way in, he's the way out. That's not actually what he's developing here, though. He's really focused on his role as the shepherd, So even here, right, this isn't really about Jesus as the gate. It's about him being the shepherd, the shepherd that he came to be. And it's in contrast to the thieves and the robbers who, if you look back over history, were actually supposed to be shepherds as well. But that's not what they turned out to be. And the point Jesus makes is that all who came before me were thieves and robbers. And thieves and robbers by definition, who who aren't the ones coming through the door, they only come to do what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I, Jesus says, who, who happened to be the door, came that my sheep might have life and have it abundantly because he's a different kind of shepherd, because he's the kind of shepherd who cares for his sheep. And it's not all that hard to understand the significance of what Jesus is saying. We may at first, we may at first think that there's there's nothing really revolutionary about this, because aren't shepherds supposed to care for their sheep? 
until you remember all the the messianic mishaps, all the, the messianic pretenders that pop up that come before Jesus or all the ones that came after of how many Hitlers the world has run after. That's the big names, right? But how many have we run after? How many Pol Pots or Putin or any political figure or any political system that, 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 that promises prosperity, that promises that you, you go there and get what you want, even though you have to climb over the wall to get it. This is not God's way. God's way is one way from the very beginning. Since the day he kicked us out of Eden, someday I'll send an offspring, a child of Adam, a child of Eve, to crush the the serpent's head. That's God's way. That's God's way. When God sends God's man to do God's thing. But how often do we run after, even in our own country, even in our own country, even when... When we're climbing over the wall, it's sometimes pretty close to the gate. We're still going over the wall. And what do you lose when you go that way? What do you lose? It says you lose, you lose your stuff. It says you lose your stuff. Right? They come to steal. Sometimes your very dignity. You lose your life. I don't know your lifestyle. They kill you. This leads to death. They come to kill. And you lose ultimately any hope of ever making it back again. Because they come to destroy. The messianic mishaps. the, The messianic pretenders. And it's not just true for, 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 for history since Jesus. It was true before as well. This is what the prophet Ezekiel rips into the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel for. You fattened yourself on the sheep. The sheep you were supposed to be protecting, all you've done is eaten them. You've fattened yourself with them. You've skinned them alive and left them for dead. And Jesus shows up to say, I'm a different kind of shepherd. I'm a different kind of shepherd. It was years before this that even God's people were warned when, when, when they wanted a king of their own. And God said, just, just know, just know that such a king, if it's not my king, will take your sons to serve in his army, will take your daughters to serve in his house. He'll come and take the best of your fields. He'll take the best of your food and he'll leave you with nothing. A warning that was conspicuously fulfilled after a man named Solomon, son of David, the king, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey of his own. And it wasn't a mistake that Jesus came to redo what Solomon did in order to undo it for God's people. Solomon ravaged the people of Israel. And he did it all. He started doing it all in the name of building God a temple. In the name of building God a temple. And 
so two chapters from now when Jesus rides into Jerusalem for himself and is greeted with the branches of palm trees. As the people shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus wants us to understand his showing up in Jerusalem that last time through the words he spoke the time before. That he comes first as a shepherd king who cares for his sheep. But he cares for his sheep in a very unique way. As second, a shepherd who sacrifices for his sheep. Look at what Jesus says next in verse 11. He says, I am not just any shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Why? Because there's a difference when a thing is yours and when you care about it just because it's a means to some other end. You know this, right? You know this, I know this. There's a difference. There's a difference from when you hire something out or are hired out yourself to do something by someone else. There's a difference between that and when you own it, isn't there? I remember uh, renting a car in Iceland. Midnight, Kath and the kids were tired. They didn't know what I was up to. Rented a car. And we were going to drive around. We had a layover of about 17 hours. We had 15 hours, that meant, to drive around Iceland. So we rented a car. And the, the guy behind the counter informed me, shouldn't have, but he informed me that the car only had five miles on the odometer. It had just been dropped off. Nobody had ever driven it before, which gave me the clue that when I came back, any dents in this car were going to be dents that I put there. So in a very, in a very um, uh, uh, manner that is not like me at all, I think for the first time in my life, I bought the insurance policy, right? And, and while I was doing it, I asked a few questions. So this covers everything, right? Covers everything. I mean, anything, right? I come back, there's no limit right? There's no deductible, right? Covers everything. 20 bucks. I said, all right, great. And we ripped through Iceland. We went all over. The, I mean, we were off-roading in this little coop. We were in, in, into Iceland. We were, we, were, we were way out where there was no roads. Why? Because it wasn't my car. We were getting our money's worth. And that 20 bucks, like I came back and they said, they found the dents. Rocks that we had kicked up and, you know, knocked into the fender and the one little animal that I don't know what it was that we <laughs> ran over. They found it and they actually, they, they made a fuss over it and I said, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I bought the insurance and then walked away because it wasn't mine, right? It didn't matter. And whether you're hiring something out or you're hired out by someone else, there's a difference between that and when you own it, when it's yours. There's a point at which, even if you're, you're not a thief and a robber, that you put down the staff and you put down the sling and you leave the flock to fend for itself because it just isn't worth it. 
It's not your flock. It's not your future. You go take up some other hobby, some less dramatic hobby. You don't have to fight wolves. It's not yours. Not your problem. But if the flock is your own, you're going to care for it, not just as a, a means to some other end, but because this is your end. Which means as encouraging as it is, to recite those words from Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, they take on a whole nother meaning when heaven echoes, and that is my sheep. Yet Jesus takes this to a whole nother level, doesn't he? He stretches this sheep-shepherd metaphor to its breaking point. Because in a lot of ways, what Jesus says doesn't make sense of shepherds back then or today. Because he presents himself not just as a shepherd who cares for his sheep because they're his own, but cares for his sheep by sacrificing himself on their behalf. Listen again to what he says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. For sure, a good, a good shepherd would risk his life for the sheep because that was his livelihood. They were his and, and his future was wrapped up with them. But giving up his life for them? That doesn't make sense. That's an entirely different matter because what good is dying for the sheep if in the end the shepherd's dead? Who matters more? They may be his livelihood, but that doesn't make them worth his life. Even a good shepherd should turn away at some point if he's at all a sane shepherd. It's why you don't find presidents or, or prime ministers on the front lines of battle. It's why sometimes the, the greatest sacrifice a king makes is sometimes not going out to battle. Why? Because after the battle, the war wages on and the king matters. The prime minister matters. The president matters. Protect at all cost. Unless the battle they go out to fight is the war. Unless the battle they go out to fight is the war. That's the picture here. That's what Jesus seems to be saying. He goes on in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I know what they need. They know I've got what they need. Just like I'm doing the Father's will and he knows I'm doing it. He says in verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. How? How? by laying down my life, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge, this commandment is the word I received from my Father, I lay it down 
Why? Because this is the shepherd king I came to be. And this is the shepherd king my sheep need. And in dying for the sheep, I not only go to battle on their behalf, I go to win the war. And even death itself will not hold him. So coming in order that his sheep might have life and have it abundantly, Jesus cares for them by dying on their behalf. And when in two chapters the people are waving their palm branches, which is just another way of them saying that, that we want rid of the Romans. When they're waving their palm branches, Jesus comes to take on not the latest imperial threat, but the forces of evil that have waged war against humanity since the very beginning of history. This is the problem. Not the stuff we see out there. That's easy compared. This is the problem. And this is the war he went to win on our behalf. Because he's the kind of shepherd who cares for his sheep. As the kind of shepherd who sacrifices for his sheep. Which allows him, third, to be a shepherd who carries his sheep. We read that there was again a division. We read this in um, the following verses that there was again a division among uh, the Jews concerning Jesus. Some call him insane. Others wonder otherwise. But it's not until another feast in Jerusalem about two months later. You don't, you don't see the break really because it's one story. But it's not until another feast about two months later in Jerusalem that this scene actually comes to a head. And it's all still about the sheep and their shepherd. Look at verse 22. It says, At the time, the, um, at the time that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, probably never having left from the Feast of Booths two months earlier. And he's walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon, the guy who rode in on the donkey, right? So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, who in their minds was the one who was going to get rid of the Romans... If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. To which Jesus answers, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, he says, who has given them to me, he's greater than all, and no one is even able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He says, my sheep hear my voice. And all that I've been saying about laying down my life on their behalf and about trusting me to do for them what they can't. They hear my voice. 
He says, he says, not only that, and I know them. I know them. I know their weakness. I know the strength they need from me. I know that my laying down my life is what they need. And they follow me, he says. Why? Because they know me. And that I do for them what no one else can. He says, I give them eternal life, right? All these phrases, they're meant, to, they're meant to build on each other, call into remembrance, all that Jesus has already said. He says, I give them eternal life. How? By laying down my life that I might take it up again. And they will never perish, he says. Why? Because in laying down my life, I will deal with death itself. And after that, he says, no other enemy has a hold on them. No other enemy. So no one will snatch them out of my hand. Not the thief. Not the robber. Not the wolf. Not even death. Because I carry them. I hold them. There's a lot of comfort in that verse. Because it often seems like we will be snatched. It often seems like we're wandering after the thief and the robber, right? Jesus says, no. There's no way if you're mine. You know, in the ancient world, sheep were prone to wander, right? That's why Isaiah, a prophet in the Old Testament, in, in, in his um, 53rd chapter says, we all like sheep have gone astray, right? Because we're just used to doing that. We're just going our own way, right? All over the place. It was prone to wander in, in ancient times. And, and a shepherd would often go after a wandering sheep and break its legs. That's what the rod was for. Brings me comfort and cheer. Break its legs. Take it and put it over its shoulders and walk with it until those legs healed. When they healed, sheep never wandered again. Which brings an awful new way of looking at that poem, Footprints in the Sand. Where are the two sets of, of, of footprints, Lord? It was then that I broke your legs and I carried you. Because no one can snatch you out of his hand. No one can snatch you after out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. This is a different kind of shepherd. This is the kind of shepherd we need because if we're just being honest, we are dumb, directionless, and defenseless. If we're just being honest, which again, it's not an indictment against us. That's who we are, right? This is who we are. But it magnifies, rather than our weakness, it magnifies the strength of the shepherd. If we're just being honest, the stupidest, stubbornest, most vulnerable animals on the planet. If we're just being honest. And this is the kind of shepherd we need. We could read after this the reaction of the Jews. It's not a good one. That they again pick up stones to stone Jesus. So much so that Jesus retreats all the way back in the end to where the story began, to the place John the Baptist was baptizing, which is where this gospel started off. But before we close, 
want to come back to the connection between this account here in John chapter 10 and the account of Palm Sunday that we're going to get to in a few weeks in John chapter 12. I think by now you can see that when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem for the last time and the people are waving those palm branches, wanting Jesus to rid them of the Romans, that the irony of that moment is that he shows up not to deal with the Romans, but to deal with a much more deadly enemy, to deal with death itself. So in their hopes for a a king, we're supposed to understand already the shepherd king he came to be, who cares for his sheep by sacrificing for his sheep, that he might carry his sheep. But the connection between these two chapters runs deeper still. And this is what I want you to leave here seeing today. And it's all to do with that last feast mentioned in verse 22. Did you notice it? I mean, you've heard me over the weeks, right, harping on these feasts, that these are the frameworks through which we're supposed to understand these stories, that, that, that these are the lenses that we're given, feast after feast after feast, the Sabbath, the Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, now the climax of all of that, the Feast of Dedication which actually is the only one not mentioned in the Old Testament because this is a feast that celebrated when the Jews won back their independence and finally kicked out the last opposing force in Israel. Do you know that happened long before 1947, is it? Some people know that more than I do. Long before that, do you know they won back their freedom? They had kicked out everyone 200 years before Jesus. They had kicked out everyone. That The Greeks were, were booted out of Jerusalem. And the Jews once more ruled their own land. That's what the Feast of Dedication celebrated. What we know more commonly today as the Feast of Hanukkah. It's when the Jews won back their land under a guy named Judah the Hammer. Judah Maccabee. Those are books that didn't make it into our Bible. What can you say? That's what the Feast of Dedication was all about. When they won back their land and they rededicated the temple. The temple that way back before was built by that guy named Solomon. Rededicated again. And here they are celebrating it in John 10. But the symbol of the Maccabees, when they took back their land, what they waved on those days, which became a a, a symbol of, of Jewish nationalistic pride, was what? It was the palm branch. It was the palm branch. It was a symbol of us taking back what is ours. And so they wave it in John 12. But Jesus shows up at their feast two chapters before to say, when we get there, know that I'm not coming for what you think I'm coming for. You see, the Feast of Dedication, what we know today as Hanukkah, was when the Jews celebrated that rededication of the temple, when for the first time after the exile, out of their land, they kicked out the foreign opposition won back their national independence. It was a a revolution 
led by that man, Judah Maccabee. Man who some thought was ushering in a messianic age. But who with time, especially in his offspring, proved to be just another thief, just another robber. Man under whom the palm branch became that symbol after whom that nation awaited the day they could wave those palm branches again. But what the Maccabees did with hammers and swords, Jesus came to do with a cross. What the Maccabees did on war horses, Jesus did on a donkey. And what the Maccabees did to free their land from all other nations, More and more in this gospel we're seeing that Jesus did when they they wanted to become kings like those other nations had. Jesus did to become the shepherd king of all nations. Which is why we have hope today. Because he is the shepherd king we need. I want to encourage you this week with one thing. One thing. One thing, I want to encourage you as we celebrate Palm Sunday today, as we, as we approach Good Friday, as we anticipate Easter Sunday, to see Jesus for who he is, not what you want him to be. To stare at him, to look long in his face, to, to dwell long on his words. So that when everyone else is waving palm branches, looking to him to free them from from the Romans or, or whatever it is, you would look to him to deal with something much, much deeper. To establish a kingdom far greater. Because he is a far greater king. To that end, I'm going to invite um, Ken and Catherine, back up. The words are on the back of your bulletin. And I'll invite you to stand again as we sing, not only remembering the Lord of the Old Testament as our shepherd, but Jesus Christ who came to show us even more. joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible.org.